places. Our Father, you are good, and we are not. You are holy, and we are not. So in these next few moments, we pray that your Holy Spirit will come and do his work in our hearts, in our lives, both individually and corporately. Father, forgive your servant, for his sins are many, and we have come this morning to see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. There was a mum who uh, arrived home one day and uh, found a letter on the table in uh, the living room addressed to her. And uh, with very trembling hands, she opened it and began to read. This is what she read. Dear Mum, it is with much regret and sorrow that I'm telling you I've run away with my new boyfriend. I know how upset you'll be, but I'm truly happy. So please find it in your heart to be happy for me. I found real passion with Ahmed. He's so nice with all his piercings and tattoos and his big motorcycle. <clears throat> But that's not all, Mum. I'm pregnant. Can you believe it? Ahmed says we'll be really happy in his trailer in the woods. And we wa he wants to have more children, and that's always been one of my dreams. I've learned that marijuana doesn't hurt anyone. So we've decided to sell it to help support ourselves and our children. In the meantime, please pray for the medical profession to find a cure for HIV. I pray every night for Ahmed to get better. He deserves it. Don't worry, Mum. I'm 16 years old now and I know how to take care of myself. Someday I'll return so you and Dad can get to know your grandchildren. Your daughter, Judith. P.S. Mum, it's not true. I'm over at Sarah's house. <laughs> I just wanted to show you that there are worse things in life than the report card that's in my desk drawer. <laughs> well, for most of us, that's a very unlikely scenario. But just imagine for a moment, what if it were true. How would you respond? Change the scenario for a moment and let's, let's assume that uh, you are a business person, you've got your own business and uh, what, what, what if one of your trusted workers embezzled $20,000 from your business account? Then they fled overseas to the Cayman Islands and they return a few weeks later with empty pockets, this forlorn look upon their face, and they come and they ask you 
for forgiveness. Would you be hurt? I dare say. How would you deal with, with the way that you've been betrayed? Would you be welcoming? Great to see you. Would you be willing to look past the wrongs that this person has done to you? That's the essence of this letter that Paul wrote long ago to Philemon. It's a personal letter. And Paul's letter here, it's a wonderful letter because it's, it's a letter that contains forgiveness or asks, a gives a message of forgiveness. It talks about second chances. It talks about mercy and grace. It's a message about what it means to be ears of Christ, the equality that we have in Christ together as his people. And it reveals something of the power of the gospel to transcend boundaries, whatever they may be, particularly social boundaries. But above everything else, there is this overriding message about grace. Somewhere or another, Philemon had contact with the Apostle Paul. Round about 62 AD, and Philemon, after uh, meeting Paul, has found his own personal grace in Jesus. He's become a follower of Jesus. He lives in uh, southern Turkey in a, uh, a Roman city called Colossae. There he is a, a businessman, probably a man of some wealth. Uh, he owns slaves, which of course was very common uh, across the Roman Empire uh, during that period of history. And Philemon has a slave. One of his slaves is named Onesimus. As uh, tradition tells it, it's uh, likely or believed that he stole some property and he ran away. According to Roman law, if he was caught, Philemon has every right to flog him, to kill him put him to death for abandoning his owner. But Onesimus has fled, and he's travelled some distance across the Mediterranean, and he's come to Rome. And there Onesimus has encountered Paul, and he too is now a follower of Jesus. Paul gets rather attached to Onesimus. Maybe Onesimus visited him in prison, brought him some food, some parchments to write on. They obviously became friends. And, and during the course of conversation, Onesimus confesses to Paul what he's done against Philemon. And so here's the letter that Paul writes to this businessman back in Colossae. And he's telling Philemon, Onesimus is here. I've got him. 
But Philemon, I want you to know, he's a changed man. And I'm going to send him back to you. In, in fact, Onesimus is the one who's carrying the letter. Onesimus is, going to come, is coming back to you and I want you to receive him. Welcome him back into your family. You know how Paul refers to Philemon in the opening text that Phil read to us? Uh, our dear friend, Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Paul and Philemon, dear friends. And this is the underlying foundation of their relationship together. Philemon is in Colossae. From all accounts, he has a house church that operates in his uh, home. And we note here that Paul does not impose his rank as an apostle or his status toward Philemon. Philemon, he says, we're equal brothers. We're friends. We're co-laborers. We're fellow workers. And we are working for the same Lord. But you'll note that this letter is not just to Philemon. It's also to the church that meets in your home. So why does Paul address the whole church when this is a private matter between two brothers, Philemon and Onesimus? Why should the church know anything about what's going on, what Paul's writing about? And maybe this is something we forget in our church life together. Paul is emphasising and reminding us here how individual decisions affect the whole, the entire believing community. The healthiest way for any person to make good choices in life, to make uh, even tough ethical decisions that affect them and their family is always within the context of community support, not as isolated individuals. And so by addressing this private letter to the entire church there at Colossae, Paul is implying to Philemon, Philemon, you're not alone. The church as a whole has some say in this decision-making as well in spite of you thinking that this is your decision and yours alone. Now, brothers and sisters, we live in a society, don't we, that values its right to privacy above everything else. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to tell me how to behave? Who are you to tell me decisions that I have to make that will affect me and possibly my, my family. Isn't that a common response? 
Most people, I dare say, would not appreciate the church being privy to personal matters that may well concern the treatment of an unfaithful worker. Why should we be worry about somebody who has run away from their, from their employer? What have we got to be concerned about, about trying to correct some abuse, abusive or alcoholic husband? What business is that of mine or yours? Even within the local church today, very, very common, isn't it? That we take this view that don't you interfere in my life. The decisions I make are none of your business. This is an invasion of my privacy. And the apostle says, no, 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 no. He approaches this matter quite differently. Paul, I think, in his writing is actually assuming, he approaches this matter differently, he is assuming and he expects that Christians, a body of God's people together, will live together, they will act in their decision-making together, they are committed to each other in their community. And he believes that if we belong to this family, then we are accountable, not just to Jesus, but to each other. Whatever affects one person directly affects others in God's family. And when we are joined to Christ, we are all joined to one another. So Paul is writing to his friend Philemon. He said, Philemon, listen. I know you've been disappointed with Onesimus. I know he, he's wronged you. He, he's committed some crime. You're really upset by his behaviour. Philemon, I'm telling you, Onesimus is a changed man. He's a changed person. And Philemon, now I'm asking you to accept him back. Isn't that a big call? Huge call. It involves disappointment, trust. One of the saddest discussions that I can remember in one of the churches that I pastored a lady came to see me uh, one morning in my office at the church and, and we were chatting away. She was a lady, she was involved in different ministries in the life of the congregation and it would be true that the majority of people in the church would look up to her. She was involved in a lot. Uh, she was an intelligent lady and this morning she came, she was sitting in a chair opposite me, and in the course of uh, talking together, uh, I said to her, I said, are you okay? You know what she replied? She said, no, I'm not. 
I was brought up in a family. I've got brothers and sisters. I haven't spoken to my brother for 25 years. I almost fell out of my chair. I mean, here was a lady of standing in the church and she has not spoken to her brother for 25 years. I can't comprehend that. I can't understand it. I said to her, well, why not? 25 years is an awful long time to have that distance between you and a brother. Well, we had an argument. And neither of us could say sorry. So we haven't spoken to each other for a quarter of a century. And they said, That's sad. Brothers and sisters, we have been joined together in Christ in order to learn how to work together for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus. And it's only when all of us benefit from the gifts and the encouragement that we bring to each other that the church of, of the body of Christ can truly operate. It's only when we seek the welfare of others, the good of others, it's only when we treat each other with, with the sense of genuine love and mutual respect will conflict start to be healed and begin to fade away. I've often asked myself a question which is probably relevant to each one of us. Why is it that we feel that people should forgive us, but we have such a hard time forgiving others? Paul reminds us that we are called to forgive one another on the basis of love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think this is easy for one minute. Forgiveness is always challenging, isn't it? Forgiveness is hard work. And Paul here is asking Philemon to do a very, very difficult thing. It goes against our old sinful nature. It strikes at our prideful nature. But brothers and sisters, we are now new people in Christ. And as such, we are called to exhibit this new nature that Christ has given us. In Paul's approach here, as much as we have been forgiven, he reminds us that we must also be willing to forgive others with the same love and grace. And by the way, isn't it really interesting to note that this book is all about a person forgiving another and the word forgiveness is never mentioned? Interesting. 
So Paul says, hey, Philemon, we're fellow workers, we're co-laborers, we're partners. And so in verse 17, Paul says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said this, What Christ did for us with God the Father, Paul also does for Onesimus and Philemon. As we mentioned, Paul probably led Philemon to Christ. We know that Paul led Onesimus to Christ. So here's Paul, Philemon. Philemon, remember, as you've partnered with me, listen, I'm asking you now, take Onesimus on board, partner with him. He's now a believer. So Paul, welcome him with open arms as you would welcome me. You hear what Paul is saying? Philemon, put away your anger. Put away all the expectations of the Roman culture around you about how you ought to treat Onesimus. Do it differently. Philemon, let me remind you that your life is no longer defined by how you have been hurt. It's now defined in a new way by the love and the compassion of God that has invaded your life. Great Oxford University lecturer C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has excused the inexcusable in you. Whenever we have unfinished business with others, it affects our relationship with God. Remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? And Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it means to live as a child of the kingdom. And in Matthew 5, 23, he says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus is stressing the importance of taking immediate action and settling grievances among each other. And as soon as we are conscious of a broken relationship, Jesus calls us to mend it. There's no promise that your endeavour to mend that broken relationship will, make it, will restore it, will make it right. An offer of forgiveness does not always bring reconciliation. In one of my churches that I pastored, there was a man who, uh, for whatever reason, I have no idea, had it in for me. And uh, it was soon after I arrived at this church and he, every Sunday morning, would come and he would sit in the front row. And he'd sit there for the whole service with his arms folded like this and just try and steer me out. 
He wouldn't stand for hymns. He wouldn't stand for songs. The whole service, he just sat there like this. It eats away at you as a preacher. You kind of wonder, well, what have I said? What have I done? This went on for about six or seven months. It began to affect other people in the congregation because it was just so obvious. Uh, They were wondering what was going on. So one evening, I remember I arrived home, I said to Mark, I said, uh, after tea, I'm going round to see him. This is wrong. We've got to sort this out. So after dinner, I went round, uh, knocked on the, this uh, fellow's door, and his wife greeted me with uh, open arms. Oh, Richard, Richard, so good to see you. Oh, really, come in, come in, you're welcome. She took me into the lounge of the, their house where her husband was sitting on a, in a chair, and he was reading the newspaper like this. His wife came in and said, uh, so-and-so, uh, Richard's here. <laughs> so I stood there for five minutes, which is a long time. Eventually, he put the paper down, he stood up, And he wouldn't speak to me inside of the house. He took me out to the front porch, out the front door. I said, I don't know what I've done. Don't know what I've said. But we're supposed to be brothers in Christ. And I'm here to put it right. We chatted for a little bit. I did mostly listening. He vented himself. And I said, well, I'm simply here to say I'm sorry for whatever it is I've done. I'm here to restore, if possible, the relationship. And I put my hand out to shake his hand and say, can we pray before I go? And he simply turned around, went inside, shut the door. That was it. Overtures to repair relationships can often be rejected. There's no guarantee. So I ask you this morning, in your life, are there amends that you have to make? And I would encourage you, as a brother in Christ, to sort it out, if so. To make things right with your family, co-worker, maybe even a brother or sister in Christ. Because we need to remind ourselves that apologies simply amount amount to lip service if they're not accompanied by a heartfelt commitment to change. If we are going to be a community of God's people, and work through differences in God's way, then making prompt amends is essential to family health.
You remember that remarkable story of Corrie ten Boom? Where Corrie watched in horror the Nazi jailers brutalizing her sister Bessie at Ravensbrück. Her whole family were wiped out in the uh, Holocaust. And many years later, when the war had ended, she was speaking at a church in Munich. And at the end of her speaking, a man appeared before her with his hand outstretched and said, Yeah, Fraulein, isn't God's forgiveness wonderful? What a great message you have just spoken about. And she writes this. That's when all the memories flooded into my mind again. The mocking soldiers, the piles of clothes, my dead father and sister. Corrie says I couldn't raise my hand. She couldn't do it. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not a slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, almost an almost incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, this current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. And brothers and sisters, our part is to yield our past injuries into Christ's care. Paul never mentions the word forgiveness in this letter. But he's encouraging Philemon to do it. And Paul didn't know how Philemon would respond. He took a risk. There was no guarantee that Philemon would respond positively to Paul's request. We assume that Philemon responded posit positively. And it's really interesting that at the end of the first century, one of the church fathers, Ignatius, is being taken as a prisoner of the Roman Empire to Rome to be persecuted and put to death. Ignatius was a bishop in the early church. And one of the letters that he writes towards the end of his life is to a man called Onesimus. Bishop Onesimus. He is the Bishop of Ephesus. And we have every reason to believe that this is the same Onesimus that Paul is now sending back to Philemon. Onesimus, tradition tells us, becomes a leader in the early church. So brothers and sisters, let me bring this to a, to a close with this word of challenge. Is there someone to whom you need to go 
to lay your gift at the altar before you worship and go and seek forgiveness or offer forgiveness. What will you do about it? If you have wronged someone, will you go and try to make it right? If they don't accept it, if they reject that offer, you've done what's required. Or maybe you're holding on to some word or some action that's been said or done to you and your attitude is in danger of turning to resentment and resentment after a while becomes bitterness. And that's a heavy load to carry. I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know what's in your heart. But maybe there are some here this morning who need to take a moment to speak to the Lord about it. During World War I, a German soldier dived into an out-of-the-way foxhole. And as he dived in and raised his head, there lying in the hole was a wounded enemy, a British soldier. He was soaked in blood. He was only minutes from his death. And the German soldier looked at him. He was touched by, by this man's plight and the German soldier took his water bottle and offered him some water and through the small kindness a bond was created. The dying man, the, the British soldier, lay there. He, he pointed to his, to his shirt pocket and the German soldier went over and took out his wallet and he removed some family pictures and he held them up so that the wounded man could look upon his loved family just one last time. And with bullets raging over them and war all around, these two enemies were for just a moment friends. What happened in that shell hole? Did all wars cease to exist? No. Was every wrong made right? No. What happened was simply this, that two enemies saw each other as brothers, human beings in need of help. Brothers and sisters, this is forgiveness. And forgiveness begins by rising above the war, looking beyond the uniform. It's choosing to see each other, not as a foe, maybe not even as a friend, but as a fellow soldier longing to make it home safely. So what about you? Is there a wounded soldier in your life? Is there someone that God may well be calling you to care for?
Jesus says, go. Be reconciled. Forgive one another. Just as Christ, uh, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, we are fallen people. We often use a lot of words. We sing a lot of songs. But still, Father, you know our hearts. And in the quietness of this moment this morning, we pray that you would deal with each of us. Father, sometimes it's hard to forgive. Sometimes we harbour words and actions that have offended us. How often we've taken them the wrong way. So this morning we come again and ask for your mercy and your love and your grace to wash us clean. And if there be somebody to whom we should go, Father, give us the courage. Give us a spirit of humility that we might be willing to receive and offer forgiveness to whoever. Deal with us, Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.